Some animals, like the panda, give birth to their young and then essentially abandon them. The same is true also, apparently, of the harp seal. Look at that. Isn't that cute? But sometimes their, um, their parents bear them and depart. Of course, cats also do this. I'm not going to get into a discussion on cats, lest I offend you about my opinion. Um, however, uh, pandas and harp seals and cats are equipped to handle life without the help of others. They have instinct, um, yet human babies are not equipped to handle life apart from their parents their, or their adoptive parents or someone to nurture them along. They, they really can't make life happen, and yet even there's an even more helpless position than being a a newly born baby without someone to help them. And, and that, that more vulnerable position is death. You've heard the expression, I'm sure, that dead men tell no tales. They also don't brush their teeth or eat breakfast or anything else because they're absolutely, utterly helpless. They have nothing to bring to the account. And the Bible tells us that that is the condition that we are born in. It says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. This is the way we were born, spiritually dead. And the reason for that, Romans gives us a clarity of it, how it happened. Well, because Adam sinned and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we're, we're sinners by birth. And then, of course, very shortly after our birth, we demonstrate very clearly that we are sinners by the way that we react to things and how we go through life. And so we're sinners by birth and sinners by choice. Paul has already demonstrated the perilous condition that sinners find themselves in. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he declared this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's told us that sinners have impending judgment. God's wrath comes forth against sinners. And he goes forward from that point in Romans chapter 1 to prove to us that everyone is a sinner. We're in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 19. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And some of your translations say that the whole world may be guilty before God. That is a good rendition as well. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many people that have walked on the face of the earth have been sinners? All but one. Jesus was born without sin and he lived without sin. Every other human being that has ever lived has sinned. Therefore, every human being that has ever lived has also been under the righteous appropriate 
wrath of God. Now, Romans 3 doesn't leave it there. It gives us more information to really cement it in our minds. And I want for us to read that together. Look at Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written. Listen carefully. None is righteous. No, not one. And if that's not enough, no one understands. And if that's not enough, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Why do you believe this? Because it's God's word. That's why you believe this. Look at verse 11 again. No one understands. Will you read the rest of verse 11 with me? No one seeks for God. Read it again, please. No one seeks for God. Do you believe these words to be true? You do. And the reason you do is because they're recorded in the only book that we have full confidence is from God. The only book that we can say is inspired and inerrant, it is the verbal, plenary, inspired word. In other words, every part, every word is from God for us. It was breathed out by God. So we believe this. So if we believe this, and we do, when we get to Romans chapter 9, and we read through these tough passages that we're about to encounter, we already have a foundational element that has been properly established for us. So let's take a look. Turn over to Romans chapter 9, please. How many people are born sinners? That would be all. How many people deserve to receive God's righteous judgment? That would be all. Here's a question that deviates from that line of questioning. What has God done to meet this requirement for justice? Paul has already prepared us for this. He's spoken to us about the fact that God sent his son. He came perfectly, who obeyed every law of God, every ordinance that was upon him through his time. He was tempted in every way, like as we are, yet without sin. Peter tells us that Jesus bore in his own body our sin, my sin, on the cross. And so we recognize that God has made a provision to deal with this need for ju uh, justice. Paul also addresses this important question. How does a person experience deliverance from God's righteous judgment. He makes it very clear in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. It is through faith in Christ that we receive mercy. Mercy is the removal of our sin, remission of sin. We also, through faith in Christ, receive grace. That is the addition of Jesus' righteousness. We call that transaction of the removal of our sin and the addition of Christ's righteousness, we call that justification. God declares a believer to be righteous in his sight. 
And so we recognize that while all are sinners and all deserve the righteous judgment of God, God has made a provision of the Lord Jesus Christ that when a person turns from their sin and turns to Christ for their salvation, turns to Christ for forgiveness, turns to Christ for eternal life, they receive from him the glorious forgiveness of sins and the glorious gift of eternal righteousness and eternal life. So Paul has dealt with all of these matters to this point. But we also believe Romans 3.11. What does Romans 3.11 tell me? I read it three times, you read it twice. No one seeks God. This is a real problem. If a person is born in sin, and their only solution is Christ, and they don't seek God, what does that tell you? It tells you that that person is rightly under the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. That is disturbing. And it should. It doesn't disturb us as though there's something wrong with God. No, that is bad theology, and that would make me not a worshiper. What disturbs me is for my neighbor or my child who doesn't know Christ yet, or my coworker, or all the people who walk by on a daily basis. And this is exactly what is disturbing Paul as he gets to Romans chapter 9. He opens Romans chapter 9, and he's just declared the glories that are associated with those who know Christ. That every difficulty in this life is accruing and preparing us for a greater degree of glory and that every difficulty that we face is met with a clear understanding that no matter what we face in this life, nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. For the believer, we end Romans chapter 8 with this great crescendo of joy and rejoicing. And we come to Romans chapter 9 and Paul says, yes, I believe this, but I have a burden for my fellow countrymen, the Jews who do not know Christ. They're lost just because they have been born of Abraham. does not mean they were born of God. And if they're not born of God, they don't have the joy of knowing that there is no condemnation for them. They don't have it. And so he's burdened rightly as we begin Romans chapter 9. But Paul, though he doesn't see a large response from his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, he emphatically states his thesis for Romans chapters 9 through 11 in verse 6. So we're in Romans chapter 9. In verse 6, the first half of the verse, Paul states his thesis for Romans 9, 10, and 11 that while his heart is burdened because there are those that are lost, he is not in any way denigrating God's faithfulness. In fact, he sees a glorious end to the situation. Let's take a look at Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed.
failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. All those promises that God made to Israel, he will fulfill. He'll tell us that in Romans chapter 11. But he also wants to tell us a little bit about why at this stage it appears as though things aren't working out. And he's going to go through those things. In order for God's word to be fulfilled, you ready? In order for God's word to be fulfilled, God must accomplish it. He's the only one who can. If you want to test the theory out, this week, now I'm not recommending this, I'm just saying if you want to test the theory out, this week, instead of praying and asking God to help you to obey his word, just try to obey it. You will find out in short order that you are a miserable failure. The only way you obey the command to love your spouse is as God gives you that ability by his spirit. The only way you love your neighbor as yourself is as you surrender to the Lord. God must accomplish his word for he is the only one who is able to bring supernatural matters to pass. And our study this morning and next week will be on God's merciful rescue. God's merciful rescue. We want to see how God tells us he will accomplish his promises. So this week we'll cover these three parts of Romans chapter 9. God's established pattern in verses 6 through 9. God's divine purpose in verses 10 through 13. God's discriminate mercy in verses 14 through 18. Next week, God's demonstration of his character. And then also next week, God's deliberate rescue. These will kind of give us a way that we will navigate through these passages. So first of all, God's established pattern. Look at verses 6 through 9 with me, please. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended, are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. God's established pattern. Why, why are we using that phraseology? Because you don't see any in there that says God's established pattern. Why, why is that going to capture this for us? What we're seeing is God using an illustration, true Paul, of the fact that while there are many descendants of the person Abraham, just because a person descends from Abraham does not make them a believer. And God established right from the beginning of that process that there would be a difference between this child and that child. That's how this illustration goes. In, in verse 6b, the second half of the verse, it says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What does he mean? Well, you remember Abraham's children? Was Isaac first? No. 
Ishmael the first. How'd that happen? Well, we are familiar with the Hagar situation and some of the consequences of all of those things. But simply stated, the promise went through whom? Isaac, not whom? Ishmael. Two children, physical descendants of Abraham. One, the blessing goes through. One, the promise goes through. And the other, while blessed, remember many nations were going to come out of Ishmael as well, but the promise did not come through Ishmael. So we've got two distinct persons that come out of Abraham, and just because they were both born of Abraham does not make them believers. Um, there are plenty of corollary lessons that we could take out of the illustration. In fact, in Galatians, Paul takes this illustration of Isaac and Ishmael, and he talks about the difference between the works of faith and the works of the law. And so he uses that. That's not the discussion in Romans chapter 9. It's simply this. Very simple. Abraham had two sons. The promise went through Isaac. It did not go through Ishmael. That's the whole point of verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 with that illustration. For the sake of this passage, Paul is just making that statement. And I think the implication would be, I wouldn't be dogmatic on this implication, but I think the implication would be Isaac is born again and Ishmael is not redeemed. He's not born again. I think that that's clear. I just, I wouldn't like stake my life on the fact that Ishmael's not in heaven. I'm just telling you that I think that's the, the obvious thing that Paul is conveying there. An important expression is used in verse 8. I think we have to see this. Look at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as, here's another important word, offspring. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. By contrast, the children of the flesh are not counted as the children of God. Do you see the implication there? That's, that's, I think that's an important statement to, to, to view verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 through. Um, here's a question for you. This is so we can try to digest this a little bit. If, these are hard passages. Anyone disagree? These are hard passages. But to help us digest this, let's think about this question. Has Paul already told us how a person becomes an offspring of Abraham? He has. In the book of Romans, he's told us how a person becomes an offspring of Abraham. Take a look back at Romans chapter 4 just for a moment. Now, here we're referring not to the offspring as a physical thing, but an offspring as a spiritual thing. In Romans chapter 4, look at verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, this is why it depends on, what's that word? We'll try it again because that felt a little bit sad. This is why it depends on faith. Yes, faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence 
the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he might or should become the father of many nations. As it has been told, so shall your offspring be. How do we become one of the, the children, the offspring of Abraham, spiritually, as is described in, Galatia, uh, in, in Romans chapter 4? It's by having faith in whom? Christ. And this is how we are recipients of the promises that are associated. Head back to Romans chapter 9. We have this pattern that is established. God has established this pattern to, that just because someone is a physical descendant doesn't guarantee their eternal salvation. In fact, from the very start, Isaac is born again and Ishmael, by implication, is not. Is that clear? I think that's clearly what's being said in Romans 9, 6 through 9. Look at verses 10 through 13 now as we move to God's divine purpose. God's divine purpose. It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the argument takes another step forward in this next section that we just read, because we have Jacob and Esau coming from Isaac, one man, through one mother, Rebekah, in one birthing session. So they're twins. Okay? So now we don't have Abraham with Hagar and Abraham with Sarah. Now we have Isaac with Rebekah. Same mommy, same daddy, one birthing session. There, here they come. <laughs> yes, that's how it happens. <laughs> before they were born and before they did anything, this passage says that God made a choice. And his choice, as is obvious from this text, is not based on any action in the child. Let's look again. Verse 9, uh, verse 10, excuse me. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, right, that, this is before they were born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, this happens, right? So we, we have the context there. Let's take another one of those. Let's take a deep breath. And let's let the text tell us something else. Because I want to answer this question. It's an important question. Do you know what would have happened if the actions of both Jacob and Esau were taken into the account of the selection? What would have happened if the actions had been weighed and then a decision were made? Well, text gives us a little bit of information about that. Look at verse 29. This is how this whole section is concluded, this, this section on God's selection. Verse 29. As, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had left us, had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like 
Gomorrah. There's implication there that if God said, all right, you, you do what you do and you find your way to me, how's that going to work out? What does Romans 3.11 tell us? That no one seeks after God. That's bad news. Why does no one seek after God? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So listen. We're all sinners. Under the wrath of God, we don't seek after God. If God left us alone, we would just be damned. Is that clear? I think we have clear implication of this in this text. So I think that that information helps us to try to digest it the best that we can. This is all about God's divine purpose. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Who is using the word election here? Is it me? Is it John Calvin? Is it a reformer? Who's using the word election here? Paul and God. So if, if, if you immediately start with the yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, I have to ask you, who is your yeah, yeah, but to? Because it's not to me. Um, I'm reading the text. That's my job. My job is to read the text and to try to understand it and flesh it out the best that I can. And this text says, from the hand of God, through the hand of Paul, God's purpose of election, and it uses the word that it might remain. The word there in the Greek is meno, meno, to continue. In other words, the same process that took place in bringing Abraham out of Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldees, and then the same process that stood up with the Isaac and Ishmael situation is the same process that stands up with Isaac and Rebekah, with Jacob and Esau. It's the purpose of God, the election of God, the choosing of God, that that might continue. So you can't avoid the words of God. You can avoid it by saying we're not going to read Romans chapter 9. We're just going to go straight to Romans chapter 12 and make this all very easy. That's my preference. But I'm not willing to do that because Romans chapter 9 is God's word. And I have a responsibility first to the Lord and secondly to you. And so I, I will not skip and so we're going to wrestle our way through this, seeing what God says. I want to try to keep it to what God says as opposed to what this guy thinks and that guy thinks and this other guy thinks. It doesn't matter what they think. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't really matter what you think. What does it say? Where it's clear, we have to say, yes, Lord. And we all have no other reaction but yes, Lord. So it's that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works the things that people do but listen to how he ends this 
but because of him who calls. The purpose and election that result in someone being a child of promise and a child of God is through him who calls. He made that already pretty clear in Romans chapter 8 in verses 28 through 30. He's already talked about this, and so we're not going to retread those conversations. Here's the illustration he uses in verse 12. She was told the older will serve the younger. So the question I have for you is, who told her? Who told her? Well, I can answer that question definitively because it says it in Genesis 25, 23. Ready? And the Lord said to her. So who said it? Who told Rebecca? God did. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. And so God, in the second illustration, as well as in the first illustration, chose the younger one to be the line of promise. Both Isaac was the second born of Abraham, and Jacob was the second born of Isaac. He chose the second one to pass this line of promise through. All right, that's not complicated. That's pretty straightforward, right? We get to a sticky point in verse 13. Anyone disagree that this is sticky in verse 13? Anyone resoundingly amen at the end of verse 13 and feel super happy and comfortable? Please tell me you don't. Because it's very uncomfortable to read verse 13 knowing that it's the words of God. It's less uncomfortable because I know it's the words of God, but it doesn't make it not uncomfortable. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That, those are sticky words. Now, we're not left to be overwhelmed by such a thing. Um, this is a quotation from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We're not going to go back there because it says it enough here for us to get the sense. We understand that God is using hyperbolic language here, correct? He uses extremes to make a point. Jesus did the same thing in the Gospels. You remember in Luke 14, 26, it'll be on the screens to my left and right. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we, we see that same type of hyperbolic language where, where hate is used to, to prove a point. Uh, so we don't need to go crazy with the expression. However, we don't want to soften it too much based upon the way Scripture talks about Esau elsewhere. But it's important for us. We want to be balanced by Scripture, but never, ready? Never take out your white, you know, you know white out and, and go over Scripture. Or never take out your, your eraser and try to erase it out of there. Or, or like uh, one of our former presidents many, 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 many years ago, take out the scissors and cut sections out of it that he didn't like. We can't do that. Don't explain away hard things. Try to understand hard things and understand that some things are a bit mysterious to us, and I might not understand every implication of every difficult saying. But don't erase it. 
And it's very important that we understand that while it can be hyperbolic language being used, that doesn't mean that, that this isn't saying something that's uncomfortable. It's, it is uncomfortable. Listen to how God talks about Esau elsewhere in Hebrews 12, 17. For you know that afterward, now let me stop there before I read that. You remember um, it talks about uh, Isaac, excuse me, Jacob and Esau, they had a problem and we don't have this bitterness you know, growing up within you in the, in the context of Hebrews chapter 12. And so that's the context, that, that Jacob and Esau have this, this problem between the two of them. There's, there's bitterness, don't let bitterness grow up in you, kind of like it grew up in Esau. Verse uh, 17, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was, what does the word say? Rejected, for he not found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I'm just going to say that's a hard saying of scripture. That's, that's a hard saying. I don't know exactly, um, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't run it to its nth degree, other than to say that that's there, and that that is re related in some way to what God is saying in Romans chapter 9, that Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. It's there. It's in the text. It's not, I'm not making it up. I'm not massaging the, the, the conversation. I want to understand God's word the best I can. It's not only about Esau. His descendants have gone down a pathway that leads to destruction. You read about God's pronouncements of judgment upon Edom in the book of Amos. And even more chillingly, you read about God's proclamation of judgment upon Edom through the prophet Obadiah that speaks about them as having no survivors? That, that's, that's some serious, serious stuff. These are hard concepts to digest. But what has been revealed for us is for us to grapple with. And it's important, an important question I think that we should get to now, having tried to grapple with it some, an important question that we must try to grapple with now as we go through these difficulties. Did Esau deserve judgment? Why, why can you say that so confidently? It's very simple. He's a sinner. You can look at the record and all the other things he did. You can look at some specific things that he did and say, yeah, here's the reason, here's the reason, here's the reason. You don't have to go that far. Romans 3.23. All have sinned fall short of the glory of God. Did Esau deserve judgment? Yes. Did the people of Edom deserve judgment? Again, you could go down and look at some history about why Edom deserved judgment, and that'd be fine, but you don't have to go that far. You really don't, because you know they were born sinners, and they deserve judgment. The one to, to really drive this point home is are you ready? Do I deserve judgment? Do you deserve judgment? Let's refresh our minds with scripture. I've mentioned this numerous times already this morning, but let's do it anyway. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. What does the rest of that say? Like the rest of mankind. Colossians 3, 6 says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Do I deserve judgment? I'm, now I'm not talking about you now. Just point in this direction. Do I deserve judgment? The answer is yes. 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 I deserve judgment. No matter how many people I try to minister to, no matter how much I try to love my wife and kids, no matter how much I try to care for you and shepherd the, God's flock, no matter how many people I try to impact in a military career, no matter how many of my neighbors I try to meet their needs, it doesn't, those things do not overcome my sin. I deserve God's judgment. And yet, God makes it clear that he is is saving people. That, that is what this text is about. This text is about telling us that God is not going to fail to fulfill his promises that are contained in his word. He is saving people. And we can get so distorted because we see things and it does, we don't really like how that reads and we don't like what the, what the implications of all these things are. The point of this passage is to tell us that God is saving people. This should make us say, hallelujah, praise be to God. I don't deserve it. And yet here I am, saved. Not because I'm so special, but because he is special. That is what saves my soul. He's who is available to save your soul. God is saving people because he is merciful and gracious. To people like me who do not deserve it. And as Paul considers these truths in Romans chapter 9, he anticipates a question on God's justice. And so we come to the third phase of our discussion for this morning is God's discriminate mercy. God's discriminate mercy. Verses 14 through 18. Our brother David read this for us this morning. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The answer to that is by no means. Or as the old King James says, God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. What shall we say then? What, 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 do, what do we do with this? How do I respond to these truths that God promised through Isaac and these uh, 
Ishmael is on the outside looking in. And God promises through, through Jacob and Esau's on the outside looking in. What do I say to these things? Is God unjust? That's the question. Is God unjust? Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers this emphatically, as emphatically as you could. He says, absolutely not. In the most, in the strongest possible way. Meginata. It means God forbid, or no way, no how, in no possible way. Let it never be, that is the concept. Let it never be that anyone could, could consider God unjust. To develop this thought that God is not unjust, Paul cites two illustrations in the book of Exodus. The first comes from Exodus thirty-three nineteen, which we're not going to turn to. It'll be on the, the board in just a minute, not yet. Sorry, my bad. In verse 15, look at what he says. For he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I want to set the context just for a moment because it really helps to, to see what God is saying when he makes this glorious statement. Moses is on the mountain Receiving the commandments of God and the people start to panic. They gather their gold. They form a calf. And they worship the calf. Aaron making that crazy statement. Blows my mind. Behold, your God who led you out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> Tell me that blows your mind. They were there. They saw what happened. They know who took the jewelry. They know who melted the jewelry. They know who formed the calf. What are you thinking? And God is angry. I will destroy them, says he. And Moses pleads. And he says, I want to remind you of two things. You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you, you have to fulfill. And secondly, the people of Egypt just saw what you did. They saw you bring them out. And if you kill them now, the reputation will be who took them out of our land and destroyed them in the wilderness. What kind of a God is that? Moses, after God relents, Moses is discouraged. If he goes down and he hears the noise and he sees the scene and he breaks the commandment, he's disgusted as you would be and as I would be. And God is going to use Moses to lead this people. And he says, if you don't come with me, I'm not going. Take me out now. Show me that you're with me. And so he asks to see God's glory. And before God shows Moses his glory, he says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to show you a portion of my glory. You're going to go into this spot. I'm going to show you a portion of my glory. But listen to the words that God conveys to Moses so that Moses would know his character in this revelation of himself. These are the words. Exodus 33:19. And he said, 
I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will proclaim my own name before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. This is how God introduces himself. And so when Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 9 at the question that arises from his mind, is there injustice on God's part? He says, wait, let's remember that God introduced himself like this. This is how God describes himself. I have a right to be merciful. I have a right to be gracious. I don't owe anyone. You know, one of the problems that we have I'm talking about humanly, is that we have this sense that God owes people things, and if he doesn't come through for them, I feel, I'm using this, these words loosely, not, uh, not me, I feel like God is not fair. And this discussion is, is absolutely destroying that argument. All of us are worthy of condemnation. And God has a right to decide to demonstrate mercy and compassion. That's what he's telling us here. Hard words. God had been gracious to Israel, merciful to Israel in the face of their rebellion. And he didn't need to demonstrate mercy any longer, but he chose to do so. Back in Romans chapter 9, in verse 16, he summarizes the point being made by saying this. So then, it depends on, not on human will or exertion. The, the word there has the idea of running, but on God who has mercy. I want to share it to you in the New American Standard because it, it captures the words a little better. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's pretty clear. What do I need, brothers and sisters? Mercy. Mercy is undeserved. Undeserved. God, in his will, blesses me, the one who doesn't deserve forgiveness, and he blesses me with it anyway. He has a right to do this. That's the first illustration. Second illustration comes from Exodus 9, 16. We're not going to... We're not going to go there yet, but verse 17 is where, the, where Paul uses it. So we're in Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now this came in Exodus 9, 16, in the midst of the announcement of the seventh plague upon the Egyptians. And these plagues, you'll remember, were designed to... They were designed to do a number of things. To prepare Israel for departure. They were designed to destroy the imaginary power of the Egyptian gods. And thirdly, they were designed to proclaim the glory of God to the surrounding nations. And so we've got plague, plague, plague. You get to the seventh plague. God makes the statement to Pharaoh that I have raised you up that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was a brutal, self 
serving regent. Pharaoh consistently hardened his own heart against God and his warnings, and God ultimately hardened Pharaoh's heart through the process. We can get into all the minutiae of it. I don't think we have to. Pharaoh's hard. God hardens him. We've heard this expression, maybe. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. So here's God being who he is. Here's God's word coming true for the one that has good soil, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, I think it was. The one that has good soil, it'll, it'll reap an abundant harvest. But to the one that has hard soil, it just sits there and the birds come and pluck it away. Verse 18 summarizes God's point through Paul. He says, so then he, God, has mercy on who? Will you say it with me? Whomever he wills. Well, let's, let's try that again because this is important. We're studying God's word. I want for us to make sure we're hearing God and his word. Verse 18, I want you to, I'll tell you when to say it with me. Ready? Then he, uh, me, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Who's the one who calls? God. Who's the one who gives mercy? God. Who's the one who hardens? God. Sometimes in response to other people's hardness, but that's, that's another matter. This is why we've characterized this uh, last portion that we're talking about as God's discriminate mercy. I think to finish off our discussion for this morning, I think it's important for us to, again, take one of those deep cleansing breaths. We're just looking at what God's word is saying. I've tried my best to not inject myself into this. What does the text say? We have a question that I think should arise at this point of our discussion, and that is this. Is there a pathway for mercy? Does the, does the Bible talk anything about a pathway for mercy? And let me state it this way. What is the pathway for mercy? And Paul and God do not leave us to figure this out on our own. In fact, in the next chapter, he gives us very great clarity on it. Look at chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and following. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth uh, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For whoever, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this question is important. How many of those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved? It's clear, right? All right, let's follow it up with another question. How many of those that come to the Lord for salvation will be turned aside? Well, it's, I, it, it's semi-clear from that text, right? Because he says, all who come. Well, John 6, 37 makes it abundantly clear. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, what does it say? I will 
never cast out. So these are truths that are clear in the context and, and beyond the context to help us to understand there is a pathway for mercy. So the question that we have to ask is, first of all, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? If yes, what does that mean? That with the heart there is belief unto justification. With the mouth there is confession unto salvation. Glorious! Have you or are you telling others to call upon the name of the Lord? Are you telling others to call upon the name of the Lord? How will they hear without a preacher? That's Romans chapter 10 as well. How will they hear without a preacher? They're not going to come without the gospel. It's the word of faith, the word of Christ that brings it about. And know this, and this text makes it Abundantly clear. Ready? God is abundant in mercy. God is abundant in mercy. It's tough treading. It's tough sledding. It's tough navigating through these passages. What does it say? Ultimately, it's letting us know that the word of God has not failed. That God is demonstrating mercy. That mercy is available at the end of chapter 9, we'll get, get into it in a couple of weeks, he's going to say the reason that m much of Israel is not saved is they have not believed. So they have much to be ashamed of. But those who do come to him in faith will never be put to shame. So what do I do? Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe, believe. And tell, tell people. They need to know what God has done through his son Jesus Christ that they might have life and have it eternally. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Help us to know you and believe you. and Help us to humble ourselves before you and what you've revealed to us. Change us where we need changing. And give us, Father, a desire to proclaim your name until we have no breath left. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.